I echo what Greg says, and we don't ever want to focus on one person, but we do want to celebrate service, don't we? And so we want to celebrate when people serve and people serve well. And so thank you, Shiloh, and thank you, ladies, for bringing that beautiful special. And thank you, Greg, and the other ones that help serve us as we worship the Lord together. I know that uh, someone um, I already heard say thank you for the rain. I I definitely think we should be grateful for the rain. But sometimes it can be more thankfulness than we really want to have at one point. And I don't think any of us went to bed last night having that much thankfulness ready to up ready to give to God and so I am uh, I am just grateful that uh, you're able to be here uh, you know it's I consider it a great treasure when you leave your house in the morning and you go one way and you gotta say no I gotta turn around I gotta go back another way and then you get to another way and you say I gotta turn around and go a different way just to find some paved road there's a lot of people in this world that don't have that luxury to be able to have that kind of a history and that kind of a story and to be able to have that kind of a have that kind of an opportunity um, I think it's a great 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 blessing so I am so grateful that you are here this morning I hope that when you came in you got a copy of the bulletin on the back of that there will be some notes and on those notes you'll see we're gonna be in Joshua chapter 22 this morning So I invite for you to take your Bible and turn with me to Joshua chapter 22. I don't know about you, but I was on the third course, Greg. When we're singing Count Your Many Blessings, I grew up in a different tempo to the song. And you know how you get to that end, Count Your Many Blessings, and they got the very end, it's named them one by one. And I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there and I'm going, what do you do? What do you do? He just switched it up on me. And so I'm sorry, if anybody listens to me sing, I messed you up because I... I <laughs> well, they, well, you all know, but I didn't know it that way. So when they named them one by one, I was like, no, that's not how it goes. And that's not... That's not so I was on the third chorus before I finally got the wording down. So if you're looking at me going, what's this guy doing? I'm just behind. And that happens a lot in my life. You can ask Jaylene, but I'm just, I I was trying to keep up. And so I I enjoy some of those songs. And, uh, you know, you get in a rut where you think that's just the only way you can sing the song. And then you realize there's other ways that you can do it. And the the heart, the spirit is still the same. So I I appreciate the opportunity to learn new ways to sing and just old time proven songs. That's the first time we've ever done. That's the first time. Okay. Well, I was, uh, I, I, was, I was a little bit taken back, so I thank you for your grace and, and my, uh, my ignorance. So, but Joshua chapter 22, we've been, we've been walking through the book of Joshua together on Sunday mornings, looking at it together as a church, and we're going to continue on. We've got maybe a week or two more left in the book of Joshua, and then we'll move off in a different direction. But Joshua chapter 22, and those notes that you have there um, with you on the back of that bulletin. 1982, there was a conflict known as the Falkland Islands conflict. I was just one years old, so I really don't remember a lot of the details about it, but I've read about it. And, and during that conflict, there was the British Royal Navy that was present. There was also the Argentini, Argentinian military that was there. But in that Falkland Island conflict, the British Royal Navy felt like that their ships were unstoppable. They, in that season, they felt like they had such a sophisticated defense system that there was no way enemy attack could penetrate their defensive 
systems. They had this radar system in place and they could identify enemy missiles, enemy torpedoes, enemy attacks, and they had countermeasures by which that they could repel or destroy the incoming attack before it ever reached them. And there had been opportunity after opportunity when the enemy had fired volleys of missiles or volleys or torpedoes or some type of other attack upon them. And because of their defensive system, they were able to repel all attacks up into the point. May, uh, I think it was May 2nd of 1982, the 3,500-ton destroyer, commissioned as the HMS Sheffield, was sunk. Was sunk by a single missile fired from an Argentinian fighter jet. Now, after the sinking of the destroyer, no doubt there was an investigation. And during the investigation, it was revealed that the defensive system that the British Royal Navy had was working. And the defensive system that the British Royal Navy had employed identified that missile, that inbound missile. And it quickly had identified it as being a French-made Exocet-type missile. So the defensive systems had picked up the inbound object. They had picked up the identify what it is, where it came from, the make that identified all of that. The problem was is that the computer system had mistakenly been programmed to identify that as being a friendly object. So as the defense system is in place and has repelled attack from attack from attack, this one missile misidentified as a friendly object, was allowed to enter in undeterred to strike the the ship and eventually sink it. There are dangers all around this church today. There are dangers outside of the church. There are dangers... Around us when it comes to the culture, when it comes to expectations of morality, when it comes to redefining God's social order, when it comes to identifying where we are going to stand and where we are going to compromise, there are dangers from this world all around us. But sometimes the greatest dangers that we face on a regular basis as a church is not the dangers that we identify as being the enemies. It's the dangers that sometimes we may mistake as friendly. Sometimes the dangers that we face might be considered friendly because we don't realize the nature of what it is. And sometimes you may understand that one of the greatest dangers the church faces on a regular basis is that of unity. The things that bring that together, bring the things that bring us together and the things that divide us. Last Sunday we were talking about how unity is very important in the life of the church. And Satan is very adept in trying to break apart the unity of believers. And every time you see a church start getting together, and every time you see the church start being used by God to do something great in the community or in the people, it is no doubt Satan is always there trying to bring division, trying to bring disunity in the life of of the church. Just this last week we were up there in the youth room. We were having the boys stay up there during the part of kids camp and we had all the 35 boys up there in that area and there were some adult men that were up there and this one adult man was sitting there. He serves down at Trinity but he was sitting there. He's looking around the old fellowship hall kitchen. He's just kind of looking around and I thought well you've never been in a fellowship hall kitchen before? I mean it's kind of a standard thing. He looked and he said no. He said I just my wedding reception was in this room 
30 years ago. And I just thought it, it looks a little bit different now. And I, so then we started talking about the history of the churches here in Wilson. And he, and he told me, and it may not be exactly accurate, but he told me that Missionary Baptist Church actually started from a group from this church back in the, 18, or the 1960s, not the 18s, the 1960s, actually left this church and went up the hill and started Missionary Baptist Church. And then he told me it was in the early 80s when a group of people left this church and went and on top of the old motel, which is where the post office is at now, they rented space up there and they built a facility down there. And that was now what you know as of Trinity Baptist Church. And so both Baptist churches in this community were once a part of this Baptist church. Now I'm all for multiplication, but sometimes, sometimes it also happens because of division. And we need to be careful as we go throughout our Christian life that we guard against the attack of division. And sometimes we may misidentify. Sometimes we might misunderstand what it is and how, how truly deadly division may be. Sometimes we may say, well, it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes we may say, well, it's not a big enough problem for me to address. And I want to remind us this morning, division always is a tool of Satan to divide God's people to deter them from doing the work that God is calling us to do. So I want to look at a story. Now this is all in the narrative type genre. So it's not necessarily in a New Testament picture where you can go necessarily verse by verse. This is really going to be a story. So we're going to be looking this morning at just really a story about the life of the people of Joshua. And really we're going to be looking at a story of when they came to the precipice of division. But unity won the day. Because I think... In a church like this, Satan will give us plenty of opportunities to divide. Somebody will say something that you take the wrong way. Somebody will say something that you do take the right way and they're just a knucklehead for saying it. Sometimes the church will decide to move in a direction or choose a different path and you may say, I don't like that. Sometimes you may show up and you may not like how long the preacher preaches for. You may not like how fast the preacher preaches. You may not like how the preacher dresses. You may not like what the preacher has to say. And there's times and opportunities for you to say I'm not happy with that. And that's where the seeds of division are planted. And I want us to be reminded this morning that every attack from Satan is an attack upon the church. And every attack from Satan is an opportunity for us to divide. And when we are divided we cannot be united in the mission that God has called us to. So I'm going to look here in Joshua chapter 2. I'm going to pick it up in verse 10. And we're going to eventually try to, in the, in the, in the 45 minutes I got, we're going to try to get through the end of the chapter. But, but what I want to do is I just want to point you to five, five different ways that we can preserve unity. Five different ways, five keys I'll put there in the top of your notes. Five keys to preserving unity. We're going to take this as just lessons from the life of the people of Israel and how they did and what they did and what we can learn about what they did to say, how do we need to behave as a church? So there in Joshua chapter 22 and starting in verse 10, this is what God's word says. And when they came to the region of the Jordan, that is the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it. Or the people of Israel heard it, said, behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. 
verse 12. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered to Shiloh to make war against them. Now we're not talking about Shiloh, the pretty young lady. We're talking about Shiloh, a geographical place. See, they all had gathered together. Now some of us may say, well, what in the world is going on here, Spence? Let me just kind of catch you up to what is happening. You start there in Joshua chapter 10 and you go all the way through Joshua chapter 21. You see the conquest of the land, of the promised land that God had given them. And so Joshua leads the people in. They cross over the Jordan River. We saw where they defeated Jericho. They defeated Ai. You had the sin of Achan and what that took place. And then systematically they begin to go in and conquer the land. And as they're conquering the land, then they begin to divide up the land. And all of the 12 tribes, there's actually, if you consider it, they divided Joseph into two. So there's actually considered 13 tribes, geographically speaking. But each one of the tribes got an allotment of land. Well, Reuben and Gad and half, or, and the tribe of Manasseh, which is half the tribe of Joseph, they wanted to settle on the east side of the Jordan River. So Moses and Joshua said, fine. You can take this as your possession, but when we cross the Jordan and we go in to conquer all the land west of the Jordan, your fighting men are going to go with us and you're going to help us in the conquest. You're going to help us in that campaign. Then, once all that land is conquered, you will be released to go back and settle into the land that you've chosen, the land that you've asked for, the land on the east side of the Jordan. So here in chapter 22, they're coming to the end of the conquest. Joshua looks at Reuben, Gad, and the tribe of Manasseh, the half-tribe of Manasseh, and says, okay, the conquest, this campaign is done, you all can then go back home. So what happens is, is those two and a half tribes, then they go back home. And when they get back on the east side of the Jordan, they decide, we're going to erect an altar. And when the people on the west side, the original ten tribes, when they saw that, they're like, no, 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 that's not okay, which is where you get down to verse 12. And it says, the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Let me say, so Spence, what are, we, what are we looking at here? I want to give you the first thing that I, I want you to see from this text. And the first way that we preserve the unity within the church is that we have a defined doctrine. That we have a defined doctrine. The reason why you see there in Joshua chapter 22 and verse 12 where it says that the entire group on the west side of the Jordan River came to fight against those on the east side of the Jordan River is because they had a defined doctrine. Both both parties knew, all of the tribes knew God. And they knew what God expected of them. There was a defined doctrine. And doctrine is just simply what we believe and why we believe what we believe. Let me give you an example. God created everything. That's a doctrine. Jesus is the only way to heaven. That's a doctrine. Jesus is God in the flesh. Jesus died physically died, was buried in a tomb for three days, physically rose from the grave, defeating death, making a way for you and I to be forgiven of our sins. There is only one way to be forgiven of our sins and to have eternity in heaven, and that is through Jesus Christ and the work that Jesus Christ performed on our behalf. That is doctrine. This word of God, it is inspired by God, written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Is in, it is infallible, inerrant. It is sufficient for our daily lives. It is anything that we need for what we need to do to live faithfully before God. It's not going to tell you how to get from here to Oklahoma City. It's not a GPS necessarily, but it is everything we need to live faithfully before God. That would be a biblical 
doctrine. We believe that Jesus Christ is coming back for the church. We believe that this entire world one day is coming to a point of judgment when this world will cease as we know it and everybody on the face of the earth will spend an eternity in heaven or hell. One of those two places and how you live today determines how you will live for an eternity. And when that time of judgment comes, it will not be based upon your works, your retirement, your academic achievements. It will not be based upon your intentions or your heart. It will be based upon do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior and does he know you as his child those are all biblical doctrines and so they had these biblical doctrines there in Joshua 22 so when the people on the east side of the Jordan decided to build this altar what was the problem the problem was is that altars were associated with pagan worship altars were associated with idolatry altars were some place that somebody would come and they would offer a sacrifice they would bring their offerings they would gather around and worship and the danger was is that God had already told them you're going to worship me at the tabernacle that has been set up you're not going to go out in the desert and form your own altar you're not going to go form your own religion you're not going to do your own things this is the place of worship. So when these two tribes, or when these two groups of people on either side of the river, when one sees that the other one had built the altar, the other one had built the altar, now all of a sudden we have conflict. We have the point of division. And the reason why there was division, because both sides knew God, and both knew what God expected. The problem was, is that it appeared to be a breach of faith amongst God's people. When I say appeared to be a breach of faith, it says there in verse 12, that when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. So there was this breach of faith that was assumed. There was this assumption that they have gone off the rails, that they have apostated, and they have turned away from God. And I want to remind you this morning that ignorance of truth often leads to wrong conclusions. Ignorance of truth often leads to long conclusions. If you do not know what the Bible says, then how will you know when someone is not speaking truth? If you don't know what God's plan is for your life, then how do you know when you're in error before God? If you don't know what God's word says, then how will you guard your life and govern your life based upon the word of of God. And church, if we come together and we are not clear on what God's word says we are to do and we are to live and how this church is to govern itself and to live in this kingdom world and how we are to advance the kingdom, then how are we to live faithfully before God? Doctrine matters. And it is appalling to me how many people we have today that don't know doctrine. They don't know what the God's Word says. They don't know what they believe. They don't know how they believe and what they believe and why they believe. I was uh, talking with somebody and asked them about church and they said, we go to a non-denominational church. I don't, that's fine. That's cool. But every church believes something. <laughs> you may not believe with the Baptist faith the message and that's fine. I, God will sort it out. You're You're good. But the day doesn't go where you go to a non-denominational. I heard a young man this week talk about a trans-denominational, interdenominational. It doesn't matter how you describe it. Everybody believes something. And yet I'm appalled at how many people don't know what they believe or why they believe it. Or even where they go to church, what they believe or why they believe it. Doctrine preserves unity because doctrine gives us the groundwork by which we to which we live and serve and operate as a church before 
God. Doctrine helps keep us together and define doctrine helps point out errors and helps point us in the way we are to go. Well, there is now a breach of doctrine here in the story. Two and a half tribes there on the east side of the Jordan. It had been accused that they had built this altar of an imposing size. The, the tribes on the west side of the Jordan said, no, that is not going to happen. That is against God's word. So then notice what happens in verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel. Every one of them the head of the family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel? So they come to them and say, what are you doing? You're turning away from God. It says, in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 17. Have we not had enough of sin at Peor, from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves, and from which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord, that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow we will be angry with, he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land, where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, or make Make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And did he not perish for his iniquity alone? If you listen to that and, and you read that and you look back to that, what they are doing is, is they are bringing about spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability. Spiritual accountability is it is essential for the life and for the unity of the church. The people there on the west side of the Jordan said, no, 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 that cannot take place. So it says they brought the ten elders. They brought Phineas, the son of Eleazar. And if you were to go back to Numbers chapter 25, you would see why that was probably a big deal because back in chapter 25, the group of people had been uh, becoming into pagan worship. They'd gone around, they'd gotten these Moabite wives and they'd gone around and got these Midianite wives and they're at Peor. They had lashed themselves to the idolatry and to the pagan worship and this plague had started upon the people in Samoa. Moses is saying the plague is here because you all have turned away from God and this Jewish man brings a foreign wife into the camp. Phineas takes a big javelin, goes up and stabs both of them through the stomach and they die and the plague was averted and it says there in chapter 25 of Numbers in verse 9 24,000 people died because of the plague. So when Phineas comes to the people, he comes to them to remind them that sin, rebellion, and idolatry, idolatry does not just affect the individual, it affects all of us. And he reminds them right there, he says about the sin of Peor there in verse 16 and 17, and then he goes on and talks about Achan there in verse 20. He says these sins that the people committed, it affects all of us in the camp. And I want you to know that it doesn't matter whether it's a little sin or a big sin or a huge sin or a public sin or a private sin, our sin, my sin, your sin affects all of us. So if we sit back and we say, well, I know they're in sin, but I'm not going to tell me anything about it, then what kind of people are we choosing to be? So there's a spiritual accountability 
There's this spiritual accountability that comes where the people of Israel come to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan and say, no, this is not going to work. This is not allowed. This is not acceptable. And notice the reason, it's not because they didn't like it. It's not because they didn't agree with it. It's not because of the fact that it didn't do what they wanted to do. It's because it was a sin against God. We have lost that in the church today. And the effect is evident. We're given clear instructions in Matthew 18 when there's a sin or an offense, how we deal with sin and offense in the church. We're given very clear instructions in 1 Corinthians about when there's rank, unrepentant, open sin taking place in the life of the church, how the church is to deal with those things. And why is the necessity laid upon the church to deal with the sins of the people within the church? Because the effect of sin left unchecked, left unaddressed will become like a cancer that will become cancerous throughout the entire church. And the next thing you know, we are all consumed with sin and God's favor is lifted from us and God's judgment is brought down upon us and we find ourselves divided, disunited, fighting against one another all the times, angry, upset, discouraged, and disgruntled, all because sin was allowed to fester. Sin was allowed to take seed. Sin was allowed to take place because no one was willing to address sin in the church. Now, I realize what you're saying. I, I can already hear what you're thinking. Well, Spence, how am I supposed to say something? What am I supposed to say? If I go talk to them, then they're going to talk about my sin. <laughs> That's the point. That's the point. I can't come to you and talk about error in your life if I've got error in my life. That's the plank. That's the speck that Jesus was talking about in the New Testament. It's one of those things that what is, the idea is that I'm going to try to live as faithfully as I can, as blamelessly as I can, as authentic as I can. That way I have some type of moral ground to come to you and say, oh brother and sister, oh I'm worried about you. You're turning away from God. We've come to a point in this life where it's all about you don't worry about my sin, I don't worry about your sin, and we'll just get along. And God sees it all. And we don't talk about it. That doesn't help the life of the church. Spiritual accountability helps preserve the unity of the church. And I want you to think about this because some people will say, well, I'm, it's, not, it's not my place. I am not going to say anything. And let me remind you, both leaders and cowards know the truth. Both. Leaders and cowards know the truth. And the question is, is what is the motivation? What is the focus? Why are they doing what they're doing? You look here in the text in Joshua chapter 22. It says the people of Israel sent, and I'm verse, back up in verse 13, is sent to them, verse 14, the ten chiefs, Phineas the son of Eleazar the priest, and within the ten chiefs, each from the tribal family. And what is it that they're doing in verse 16? They say to the whole congregation, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the church? No. Against me? No. Against God! Against God! And brothers and sisters, there's a difference between me coming up to you and saying, I don't like that, those shoes you're wearing, versus me coming up and saying, I'm concerned about you because you're sinning against God. There's not a single one of us in this room are free from error. There's not a single one of us in this room are free from the temptation to err. And there's not a single one of us in this room that are free from the ignorance to our error. I think, man, that's sometimes why God gave us wives. <laughs> to 
help point us areas that we can grow and areas that we can improve upon and areas that we can continue to develop into domesticated, <laughs> domesticated, <laughs> I'm stopping. So it's one of those things that, you know, this accountability comes in and this spiritual accountability, spiritual accountability should be part of the life of the church. It's what helps maintain the unity of the church. But can you imagine? Oh, can you see this? So you got these two and a half tribes are on the east side of the Jordan. They built this altar of imposing side, and all of a sudden here comes Phineas, the same guy that just averted the, the plague back in Numbers chapter 25, and then he, and he's flanked by these ten elders, and they come there like, what are you doing? You're sinning against God. And can you imagine those two and a half tribes over here on the east side of Jordan? Can you just imagine what their response was? I can imagine what my response would be. I can imagine what your response might be. We don't have to just imagine because the Bible tells us what the response was. In verse 22, listen it. It says, The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, said in answer to the heads of the family of Israel, The mighty one God, the Lord. The mighty one God, the Lord. The reputation shows the emphasis. The reputation is like putting exclamation parts, shouting it, making it loud. The repetition is in there in the Hebrew of way of putting the emphasis saying, This was a big deal. So the people don't go, How dare you come and question us? The people don't go, Oh, my feelings have been hurt. The people don't go, you have no right. Look at you. The people do nothing. The people say, oh, we understand. Oh, my goodness. The mighty one, God, the Lord. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it. May the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you and the people of Reuben and the people of Gad. And you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. I'm going to stop right there because what do you see here is not a person being offended, but you see an unoffendable heart. You see an unoffendable heart. We need more of those in the church today. We need more of those in the life of the church today that people don't show up looking for a reason to be upset. And they realize there's going to be knuckleheads that say wrong things. They're going to be reali- there's going to be times they realize they misunderstand what is being said. There's going to be times that they, and they have a misinformation. There's going to be times that the church doesn't like their opinion and think it's the best opinion in the world. There's going to be times that people do things that they don't agree with or they, they don't prefer. But yet, they understand that one of the things that we can contribute to the work of the Lord and the people of the Lord is an unoffendable heart. So you can imagine... Phineas shows up, the ten elders flanking him, and I look at them and go, what are you doing? You're sinning against God. You're turning away from God. And instead of the people getting all riled up and all offended and getting defensive and all of a sudden thinking, oh, we're under attack. Let's go into attack mode in return. They just simply say, no, we're not offended. This is why we're doing what we're doing. The concern was, is that generations would go, the group on the west side of the Jordan would look at the east side of the Jordan and say, no, 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 you have no part of us. You stay over there. So it tells us that they built this altar there to be a reminder for the people on the east side and the west side that they are all one people under God. The reason why they built that was as a reminder for the generations to come of who they belonged to and who they served. They built it as a reminder of their worship and their dedication and their devotion to God. They built it with the correct heart. Jalene can't stand when I use this phrase, but I... 
I think it's so amazing. I don't even know where I got it from. I'm sure I got it from somebody because I'm not that smart to come up with myself. But the phrase is this. Innocence has no fear of inquiry. Innocence has no fear of inquiry. I'll use this with our children because I'll ask my children questions and they will begin to be defensive. And I'll tell them, no, 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 no. You don't get defensive unless you have something to hide. There's no reason for you to get defensive. There's no reason for you to uh, go on the pufferfish mode and blow up. There's no reason for you to try to defer or try to deny if there is nothing to hide. Innocence has no fear of inquiry. So when the, the tribes on the west side of the Jordan, they come and they say, what are you doing? You don't see them being offended. You don't see them being hurt. You don't see them lashing out in kind. They had an unoffendable heart and they just simply said, this is what we're doing and this is why we're doing what we are doing. He says there in verse 29, Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for the Lord, offering grain or offering for a burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. They're saying this altar that we built, it's not to be a separate altar. This was meant to be a copy of the altar that there is at the tabernacle. It's a reminder. It's something that we want our children's children and all those come after us to remind us of who is doing what? You know, sometimes in the church today when somebody is corrected or somebody hears something they don't like, they throw a fit. And you pout. Well, I don't sit on the floor and throw a tantrum. No, you stop coming to church. You stop giving to the work of the Lord. You start looking for ways to insert sarcasm or snide remarks. You stop participating in the ministry of the church. You will show up and you are here in physical presence, but you're not here in spiritual support. Why? Because you're pouting. And you're throwing a fit. And I want to lovingly tell you that the immature throw fits and pouts. Not the mature. It's one thing to go into Walmart and to see a two-year-old in the basket throwing a fit and a tantrum. It's another thing to go in and see a 30-year-old throwing a fit and throwing a tantrum. And there's nothing spiritual and there is nothing celebratory about seeing adults act immature and throw fits. So here in this text, what we see is we see this unoffendable heart. We see this attitude that talks about being a spirit that says, I am not free from accountability and I'm not fearful of accountability and if I'm wrong, I want you to tell me that I'm wrong. Weekends, a couple of Sundays ago, David Malfurst was talking in Sunday school about people. Do you go home and look at the scripture to see if Spence got it right or wrong? This morning, Shelly told me in her Sunday school class, she said, you know, our Sunday school class is just a couple weeks behind you. And I, and I made a joke about it. That's good. So whatever I messed up, you can correct in your Sunday school class. I am not free from error. I am not free from mistake. And I want you to know that if I have done something to offend you or in error in my leadership or service to you, that you're able to come and say, hey, Spence, I don't understand. I don't agree. There should be that level of accountability and reception amongst all of us. But that's not how it happens so many times in the church today. Glad your cattle are out. It's not what happens in the church today. So many times in the church today, you get offended, I get offended, we stop talking to each other, and next thing you know, we just, re- we just pull ourselves back, and we just pull away from the life of the church. And you know what Satan is doing? Satan is sitting there going, yeah, I told you I could get them divided. I told you I could get them splintered. I told you I could have my way. All I got to do is have my way in their midst. And the next thing you know, they're not worried about chasing darkness. 
with the light of Jesus Christ, they're all they're worried about is themselves. So the two and a half tribes there on the east side of the Jordan answered with this unoffendable heart. But then notice in verse 30, and I got to speed up. In verse 30, it says, When Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel, who were with them, heard the words of the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Listen to his response. There was a priority of peace Amongst them. There was a priority of peace amongst them. When Phineas, it tells back up in verse 30, when Phineas heard of this, they rejoiced. They said, Great, that's all we're worried about. We're worried about you turning away from God, but now that we know that you're not turning away from God, we're not going to keep going and trying to find something to nitpick you about. I want to remind you that fault finding is not a spiritual gift. And looking for something to be upset about, looking for something to be offended about, looking for something to criticize about. Criticism is not a spiritual gift. Cynicism is not a spiritual gift. There should be a priority of peace about God's people. Why? Because it is through the spirit of peace that the kingdom advances. It's through the spirit of peace within the church that the work goes forward. It's through the spirit of peace that people come in and go, how in the world do these hundred people get together and not fight? How in the world do these other people come together with all their preferences and all their ideas and all the things that they enjoy and yet they're able to come in and have love for one another? It's where the world outside comes in and says, oh, that is the place that I want to be a part of. Southern Baptist Convention was just a couple of weeks ago and they always have a pastor's conference right before the convention. And this one preacher gets up and he had, he had some gumption. He had newspapers Multiple newspapers, secular newspapers, that had been writing about the Southern Baptist Convention and some of the turmoil and some of the division that is taking place in the Southern Baptist Convention. And so he gets up on a stage with 10,000 people in attendance and holds these articles up and begins to taking begins taking them to task why we are giving opportunity for the world to write about the divisions within God's people. Let's just take it back to Wellston. How often does community in Wellston have material to talk about the division amongst God's people? When I look here in this text and I see the result, the reaction of Phineas, the result, the reaction, I'm sorry, of Phineas, when it says, when Phineas, the priests and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the family of Israel, when they heard the words, it was good in their eyes. So they looked at them and said, you know what? Our goal here is not you to look like us. Our goal here is not for you to act like us. Our goal is not for you to talk like us. Our goal is for you to be faithful to God. Our goal is not for you to agree with me. Our goal is not for you to think what I think, act like I act. My goal is for you to be faithful to God. It's the matter that we prioritize peace, not our preferences. We're not coming in and saying, well, everybody has to vote the same way I vote. Everybody has to think the same way I think. There cannot be any contradiction. It's fine with me if you don't agree with me. That's okay. But it's not okay if we're not united in God. Not uniform. Uniformity is not commanded in Scripture. Unity is commanded in Scripture. And when we find ourselves 
disunified. It is not a spiritual blessing. It is a satanic work. And so we see this priority of peace. We see this priority of peace in Phineas and the people. They come in and say, yeah, okay, so as long as you're being faithful to God, we don't care what kind of soda water you drink. We don't care whose team you root for when it comes to Bedlam. We don't care about what kind of car you drive. We don't care whether you're riding a donkey or an elephant. We don't care about all this stuff. Are you being faithful to God? And then you get down to verse 32 because my time is gone. Notice in verse 32, it says, Then Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priests and the chiefs, returned returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad on the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan. So they went back home to the rest of the people there on the west side of the Jordan. Verse 33, and the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. Verse 34, and the people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. Not only is it essential that we have defined doctrine to preserve the unity of the church, but we also need spiritual accountability. We need people being willing to say, you're out of bounds in God's word. You're off the reservation when it comes to God's design for our lives. We need people with unoffendable hearts that aren't going to be offended the first time someone questions them or asks them about their practices or asking them about their faithfulness. We need to have a priority of peace that we come in and we say, you know what? Above all else, there is a need for us to be united. Not uniformed, but united. And all of this then comes down to this idea of faithful living. You want to preserve the unity of the church? You want to preserve the unity of God's people? Live a faithful life life. Because when I'm being led by the Spirit and you're being led by the Spirit, we're going to have unity. Why do I say that? Because the Spirit does not bring about the spirit of division. The Spirit will not lead us in contrary conditions and positions. The Spirit unifies the people of God. So if you're being led by the Spirit and I'm being led by the Spirit and we're all just Spirit-filled, Spirit-led people, we will have a unity of our heart. The problem is, is that some people try to get up and say, I'm being led by the Spirit when they're lying. Because they're not being led by the Spirit, they're being led by the flesh. And how do we, how do we guard against that? Faithful living. We pursue what pleases God. That's what they're talking about here in this deal. Verse 33, the report was good in the eyes of people, of the people of Israel. And then you get down to verse 34, and it says, the people of Reuben of Gad, they called the altar witness. They said, we want everybody to know this is who we belong to. We want everybody to know who we serve. We want everybody to know who we are committed to. They want to pursue a life that pleases God. And by building the altar, they wanted to point others to God. They wanted everybody else to know, here's who is in charge of us. Here's who we serve. We serve God. That is the witness of our lives. Because it came from faithful living. It came from a heart that said, we're going to live faithfully because we know that my faithful living will impact the unity of the church. Your faithful living impacts the unity of the church. And the unity of the church impacts the mission of the church and the mission of the church impacts the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ in this community and your faithful living impacts the heart of the church, the ministry of the church, the mission of the church and by your faithful living you are having a direct impact in how and where and who hears about Jesus Christ. Because you're faithful living and you guarding the spirit of unity. So how do we put this into action? 
How do we put this into action? Just three ways and we'll be done. I want you to see out of the text this morning that unity is possible but not automatic. That unity is possible but not automatic. Here in this text, in this story, in this passage this morning, there was all kinds of opportunities for division. There was all kinds of opportunities for those on the west side of the Jordan to say, hey, they built an altar, let's go beat them up. Let's go kill them. Let's go wipe them out and never even ask questions. Never even come and to say, I'm concerned about you and I'm concerned that you're living in a life unfaithful to God. There, there was that opportunity. There's the opportunity for those on the east side of the Jordan to say, how dare you question me? How dare you ask me? Let's just look at your life. You can't talk about me. Let's look at you and get defensive and get all blown up. And there was that opportunity for division there. And then once the people on the east side of the Jordan said, no, 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 this is why we did it, then you can imagine the west side saying, well, we're going to need you to, you know, write down an affidavit. Oh, we're going to take, take a vote. Okay, well, that's fine, but then you're going to have to do this, this, to put all these hoops in front of them. There was, part, there was opportunities for division there. There was opportunities for, for division everywhere. But unity was possible always. It doesn't matter how we walked in this morning. It is never impossible for us to walk out in one heart and one mind. And it doesn't matter about the past. We can walk out in one heart and one mind this morning. Because unity is possible but not automatic. The second one is that Satan despises unity. Satan despises unity. How do I know this? Because he attacks your marriages. He attacks your families. He attacks us in our lives on a consistent basis. Why do you think you have such a jerk for a boss? Why do you work with that annoying person in your workplace that you just can't get, wait to get rid of? Why is it that every time you get in the left lane on interstate, you're the only person that day that knows that the left lane is for the hammers? Why is that? Because of division? Because of the division that comes and Satan is in the business of bringing division. He despises the unity of God's people. But unity is the fruit of growing faith. You want to look at the health of a church? You want to look at the maturity of the church? You want to look at the spiritual possibilities and potential of a church? Look at the unity of of the church. Because when we see a church united, like you go back to the first pages, the first chapters of Acts, and you see that a church is united, what happened when that church got united? They reached an entire known, a known world in one generation. When you saw some people get united and get around the work of God and get faithful to God, there is no telling what God could do with those kind of people. You look historically throughout the pages of scripture, and when God's people got on one page under God's page, there is no telling what God could do with with them. Unity is the fruit of a growing faith. So you come in and you look at a church and you can tell the maturity or the spiritual growth of a church based upon the unity of the church. So why do I ask for you to live faithfully before God? Why do I ask for you to help guard the unity of this church? Because the spiritual maturity, the witness, the mission of this church is at stake. So if I haven't gotten your toes yet, let me just try one more time. So how'd you walk in? Did you walk in with hurt feelings? Did you walk in with grudges? Did you walk in 
with moments that you have not forgiven? Did you walk in with a chip? Did you walk in bringing division with you? What we're going to do is we're going to, for a few moments, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and then we're going to pray. And then we're going to stand. And I realize this is not initially an evangelistic type message. It's not evangelistic at all really this morning apart from just saying that if there's division, there is unity at the foot of the cross. Because it doesn't matter what has happened in your life, Christ has endured more. And Christ has forgiven more. And if we are in this room this morning and we know that there's seeds of disunity amongst us, then don't leave with those same seeds. But this morning, repent. Confess. And let's leave here this morning unified in our hearts and our minds. Let's not give opportunity for Satan to divide us, to further divide us, or to divide us in the future because we don't recognize the danger for what it is. You bow your heads with me.